Welcome to the Kelly Cardenas Podcast, where attitude is everything. On today's show, I am so excited uh, to bring to you one of the industry leaders. Oh. Industry- uh, this man is on, absolutely on fire. Um, he helps people to be famous, and he doesn't care about being famous himself. Uh, it's none other than Gordon Miller, the CEO of Hairbrain. Welcome, Gordon. Hey, Kelly. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I'm, I'm excited. Like I said, we're in the middle of Corona. I got dressed up for you. I put on a fancy shirt. <laughs> I love it. Now, where are you at this morning? Are you in Chicago? I'm in Chicago at home, in the home office. Okay, that's cool. So we were talking earlier, too, and you said that um, this, obviously it's been adjustments because you have to adjust in your life, but you've been working, yep. you've been working digitally. And I love this because you've been on the forefront of this, like for years and years and years and years. And now yeah. you're just catching up. Does that make sense? It does make sense. And actually our, our, our mutual friend, Nina Kovner, uh, who was a, a VP of Paul Mitchell uh, at the time is the one who said to me one day, we we're having breakfast in LA at least 10 years ago. And she's like, you're not on Facebook? Are you crazy? It's like you have professionally, you have got to get in the game. And I, and I, it was early, people were paying Farmville and Scrabble. And I'm like, I playing Farmville online. And she's like, no, no, no. It's about the community and jump in, you'll understand. And, and I was taken by it and in love with it within weeks. <laughs> well, if you, if you're in the professional beauty industry, you know about Hairbrain. If you're not in the professional beauty industry, what it is, guys, it's like the, uh, the way that I think about it, I'm a huge sports fan. I think of it as a sports center of, uh, of the hairdressing community. It is mm. it's where, where people come, uh, non-brand specific, and able to help hairdressers to be greater. I don't know that that's the tagline, um, but I'm going to make it the tagline. <laughs> so Thank you. When people see you or hear about you, uh, w- uh, listen to you on the podcast, I mean, this, uh, I like to deem him as the podfather um, because... <laughs> Before, I mean, you were doing it way before it was popular and people were, you know, yeah. um, well, help us to understand that, that, um, you know, how Gordon, um, which we know now is Gordon Miller. Everybody knows that name, but, uh, take us through, like, where did you start off? How'd you get in the industry? Where, where did this thing start? It's, uh, I'll, I'll do the short version of the story. Um, but, um, 40 years ago, it's, it's actually 41 years ago. I, so I, I, I'm not a hairdresser. I graduated from, a, from the University of Florida with a degree in business, actually in investment finance in 1978. And um, my folks had moved to Denver, Colorado when I was in college. And um, I decided I, didn't, I wanted to get, be somewhere else after college. And so I moved to Denver where they were. And um, very quickly, um, decided personally that I didn't want to be in finance. So I made that decision. Like I was in the process of, I graduated, I moved and I got to Colorado and I just woke up and went, I don't want to do this. Like, I, I, I don't know what I want to do, but I don't want to work in a bank. I don't want to work in, in the investment community. Um, so I looked in the newspaper cause I'm old, right? We got that in the one ad. That's what we used to do. Look at the newspaper. And I just looking for anything to get me out of the house. By the way, I was a closeted gay kid at the time. And I was like, I got to get away from mom and dad, at least for part of the day. I just can't deal with all this. So I found an ad for it, kind of an administrative assistant. That word, the title didn't exist back then. It was, I was a, it was a paper pushing part-time job in a company located in the World Bank building in Denver, Colorado. I said, dad will think I've got a finance job. It's all good. And it was for a company called Levon's Incorporated, which was a chain, which I had no idea. It was a chain of salons and a chain of beauty schools. And so in 1978, I became an administrative assistant part-time in a chain of beauty schools and salons 
had only been to a salon twice in my entire life because we grew up with not a lot. And didn't know, I didn't know what a beauty school was. But within a month or so, they took me around and I started meeting the hairdressers and the teachers and the students. And I was just like, and, and, and it became very apparent that, that, that the diversity was accepted and that gay people were a big part of the organization. I was like, I think I'm home. I don't, like, I don't know what this is about, but this feels really comfortable to me. And I was there for five years. Um, and that was the beginning. So now tell me again, uh, you, where'd you grow up? Where were you born? I was born in New Jersey, Long Branch, New Jersey. And when I was 13, my father had a problem with gambling and, and lost everything. And um, we moved to Florida to get away from creditors. I think we went into hiding. We were like in the witness protection program for gamblers. <laughs> we, we moved to West Palm Beach, Florida. Actually, we moved literally right across the bridge from Mar-a-Lago, which everybody knows because that's Trump's uh, uh, Florida, whatever. And um, we lived right across the lake, one block, or the, the intercoastal, one block in, in a really beautiful neighborhood. And we lived in this tiny little two-bedroom stucco house that was like, like white trash central. Like anybody who looked at it, like, why is this house in this neighborhood? And that's where we moved in. There were six of us in two bedrooms. And uh, yeah, mom and dad slept on the couch for two years. And uh, yeah, we were kind of um, nice white trash people. No, I, I, <laughs> I, say that, I say that with pride, you know, so. Whenever I meet someone who you know, spent time in Florida or lived in Florida, I'm like, where on the East Coast are you from? Or where from New York or New Jersey? Because it seems like a, a, yeah. a suburb, am I correct? Yeah, uh, yeah, it, it, it so is. So you're down there, obviously this is, you know, at that time, it's not popular. You, you went through it, you said you were closeted, uh, you know, you, you, you were a gay yep. man. And yep. it's not popular at that time. I mean, this- it was, a da- it, was da- it was dangerous at that time. It was dangerous. What did you go through during that time? Like, uh, take us through that because you're in Florida. Um, you know, you've got yep. uh, siblings. Do you have brothers, sisters? Yep, yep, we've got two brothers and a sister, mom okay. and dad, yep. So um, yeah, it was, it was fascinating. So, so I, I knew by the time I was six or seven that I was gay, um, which is really unusual back then. I was a really curious kid and I was really um, well-read as a child. I, I, I was ahead of the, the rest in terms of my reading ability and my reading interests. And daycare for us, and again, we didn't have very much. And um, so daycare for us when I was young was the library. Again, it was a different time. My folks would take us to the library and dump us off there. And, you know, for four or five hours. You know? so, and I was like, daycare, that was okay. You could do that back then. You could bring your six-year-old and leave him at the library. And nobody, nobody thought twice about it. And I, as I was figuring things out and hearing things, um, I looked those things up in the library. At seven years old, I heard the word homosexual and heard what it kind of meant. And I looked it up in the library. And I started like looking at textbooks at age seven and eight. And, and so I, I realized that, that this is who I was. Very soon after that, I was watching, I was with my family, my grandparents were there and um, my, um, we were watching The Tonight Show, which was like a, a treat because it was late. You know, we were all young, my cousins were with us. And I was sitting on the couch next to my grandmother and I crossed my legs. I put my one leg over my knee and I sat there. And at that moment, um, Johnny Mathis, the singer, came on. And my grandmother looked at me and she said, uncross your leg. She says, people will think you were a fag like he is. That's when I knew that this was not to be spoken about. That's when I kind of started my, my 
at a very young age, my journey as, as a gay person, going, knowing I was different, feeling very comfortable in my differentness at that age, which is kind of weird, but because I was, again, I think because I was reading things and, and, and just trying to keep up with it as I evolved my thinking. And I kept myself, you know, very much on the down low um, until I was in college, but only came out to myself in a sense, my first uh, semester during the summer, all my friends left, everybody went home and I stayed. And I stayed purposely because I said, this is my gay moment. <laughs> I'm gonna go to the gay bar. <laughs> I knew it existed, but I'd never been. I'm like, I'm, I'm doing that. And, and I did, and I found out more things about myself and, and then realized that it was not a safe time. I, I had some situations where, you know, I, I had three guys, you know, try to beat the shit out of me because I was gay. Um, just because I, they saw me come out of the gay bar. And so um, I experienced that. And that kept me in the closet for the most part for a long time. I came out to my folks when I was 25. And they were great and they were supportive. And um, my family has always been great and supportive. Um, but I didn't come out professionally until I was 40. Really? And um, yeah, yeah. I um, never talked about it. And it's interesting because I had a partner of 14 years back then. Uh, we met right after I moved to Denver. And he worked everywhere I worked. <laughs> so he worked at Levi. I got him a job there, but just said he was a friend. He went to work for Pivot Point. When I worked at Pivot Point, they hired him because they were looking for someone to do a certain job. And so the HR person did, would you happen to know anybody? I was like, well, but I do know a guy. And she said, well, how do you know him? I said, he takes care of my dog when I'm not around. And she's like, well, then he must be great. Well, that was true. <laughs> but we also lived together and had been partners for like 10 years. <laughs> but he did take care of my dog. <laughs> so, so they they hired him and he he was there. And it wasn't until fairly late in my tenure at Pivot Point that I, that we both kind of came out and said, well, here's who we really are. Uh, so. so one of the things that I've always loved about you, Gordon, seriously, since the time that I met you, and I've known you for quite some time, um, yeah. your attitude, your light shines all the time. And it's oh, and I see this genuine light, and you can, you can tell the difference. You can tell the difference between a light that people shine because they want it to be reflected back on them. And then there's a light that very few people have, and you have this, and that's the reason I think you've been so successful, that you literally just shine light on everybody else, and you're okay with them being great because um, – and I, I, I want to dig into that to, to understand it because more people sure. could be in that realm. Thank but you. With that light, I mean – I wouldn't have known that you had the type of impacts that you had. When did the positive attitude, and you, you said it quickly, but I want to go back to it because you said, I was okay with myself because I was reading a lot. Um, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Let's, yeah. let's unpack that a little bit because, I mean, there's a lot of things I'm not uncomfortable, that I'm, I'm, I'm uncomfortable with in my own life. Maybe I just yeah. need to yeah. about it. When did that shift happen because, or was Happy Gordon always there? Um, I don't know if Happy Gordon was always there. I think, um, no, definitely Happy Gordon wasn't always there. But, but again, my curiosity gave me a tremendous amount of self-confidence at an early age. You know, I really kind of found my, even though I was hiding things from other people, and even though, you know, hiding a very significant part of myself, and I was definitely like an awkward kid in that I was very, um, I was very much, um, somewhat of a loner you know i was definitely very introspective and and definitely you know kind of a quiet kid um except when it came to something that was 
smart, you know, like in a classroom, somebody, you know, answering a question would excite me, you know, but talking to kids in the hallway would not, you know, so, so there was that part of me. I, I, I figured out early on, and I think it was through my mother, um, I figured out early on that childhood was this thing that was temporary and that everything that came after would be different and that um, whatever I was feeling and, and being challenged by, that there would one day be like, like a doorway that would open and I was kind of like um, the Wizard of Oz when you go from the black and white, Dorothy opens and, and you go out to the, into the color. That's kind of what my take on life was um, based on what my mom had instilled in me, which allowed me to take whatever I didn't feel good about in terms of being public or nervous about perhaps and, um, and just kind of put it off on the side and say, you know, my, my day will come. And so it's okay, you know, and I'm not good at sports and it's okay. It's like, it doesn't matter, even though it might feel like it matters in the moment, you know, um, or I'm not that outgoing um, or I can't sing. I remember I was in the, we had a school thing on, in the fourth grade and they make you, the whole class had to get up and sing. And the, and the voice teacher came over and tapped me on the arm and whispered in my ear and she said, just move your lips, son. <laughs> in other words, don't sing. <laughs> like you're tone deaf. You know, so she was right, you know. But again, I, I was able to process that and be okay with that. And so, yeah, a mom, I would give it, I would give it all to mom. And then mom always told me that, you know, she said, you know, when we talk about family stuff about, you know, as life goes on, how do you want to be seen? What do you want to be known for? What I don't remember. My mother always said, you know, um, if people tell me you're nice, you know, I'll be proud, you know, and that was it. So with, with your, uh, with your mom and dad, um, what yeah. were some of the things that Mom, your mom uh, was that that was that source of wisdom, and as as yeah. my mom was, mom was um, my mom was a joyous joyous woman. Um, I yeah. love death. She uh, she passed away about a year and a half ago, um, mm. and she but she would say sayings. But then there was my dad, and my dad would say the sayings that you would be like confused by. You know what I'm saying? Like mm -hmm. I remember my dad said one time he's like, man, uh, he was mad. He's like, and some someone did something silly, and he's like, man. That's silly. Or he said stupid or whatever it was. That's dumb. That's mm -hmm. like, out of a bus seat. And I was like, what? What does that even mean, Dad? What were some <laughs> things that either one of your parents said that you were like confused by, but now you find yourself utilizing the wisdom? Because my dad, like if you, if you watch me, uh, yeah, whether it be podcast or on social media, I'm always talking about my pop. And my pops has always given me these nuggets of wisdom. But when I was a kid, I was yeah. like, you're saying the same thing over and over. What were some of those things? That <laughs> um, well, my dad, again, my dad had his share of problems, you know, so my, my dad had multiple addictions. He was an alcoholic. He was a, a highly functioning alcoholic. My dad was the life of the party. My dad was, you'd never know that he had a problem, really. Um, he was not a sloppy drunk, you know, he, he drank a six pack of beer every single night on the couch, you know, for all the years that I lost my dad a couple years ago. He's gone now, but um forever you know um and there was a lot more than just a six-pack most nights but um so high function alcoholic definitely uh, gambling was his you know achilles heel um and and other stuff you know had a problem with women as well so dad was you know but my dad i loved my dad my dad was so much fun my dad was the life of the party my dad everybody adored my dad um he was a sales guy and when i think about the parts of my professional life where i've had to sell i always think about my dad and um my, my dad said early on in my under, in my professional life, my dad said, um, cause I, I was like, I don't like selling, 
you know, like, I don't like to think that I have to sell, but part of my job at that point time was selling when I was a pivot point. He's like, son, sales is nothing more than positive manipulation. <laughs> I've always remembered that. And it's a weird little phrase, you know, but that's how he thought of sales, thinking from sales being a negative term to positive manipulation. And I thought, okay, you know, so I, I can run with that. My dad's number one thing that he always said was, you know, you only live once and, and you have to live your, you know, like your fullest life now. Now, what my dad meant by that was don't worry about saving money. Don't worry about your responsibilities in your work life. Don't worry about your responsibilities to anybody. Um, you could be dead in a couple of days, so just go for it now. Um, again, in my dad's way of thinking, um, we would go to, we lived in, again, in, in Florida, it was around the time that Disney World opened. And so he would take us to Disney World when things were most difficult. And by the time I was like 16, you know, I was like, we're going to Disney, the family's like, we're going to Disney World. And I was like, oh shit, they're going to repo the car. Because what I learned is that over time, and actually it would repo the house, um, that my dad's attitude about living your life in the moment was connected to his, his addictions. And that it was always, and he would hide those things from us in a sense. He would kind of remove us from what was about to happen that was negative. But over time, we all figured it out. And we're like, okay, this is just the life we live. And, and we went through three homes in Florida that were repossessed and a boat repossessed and multiple cars repossessed. And, and, but dad was always happy through it all. And, kind of, and, and my mom protected us from all of it. So we, in spite of all that stuff that sounds really negative, what was so wonderful about my mom was that she made life always fun. You know, she made, even when we had nothing, she'd figure out how to make it like nothing, how to make food out of nothing. My mother was a brilliant cook. Um, my dad was funny, you know, and we never talked about his problems, but we all knew they were there. And, and uh, yeah, so, that, so dad, that was dad's big thing, you know, about, you know, so it was not, it was not good advice, but that was his like main piece of advice. His other kind of funny piece of advice that stuck with me for years um, was don't get to know your neighbors. And it was like, that was it. Don't get to know your neighbors. I was like, early on, we're like, why? <laughs> He'd get upset if you talk to the neighbors. He's like, well, he's like, there's a good chance at some point you're not going to get along with them and you still have to live next to them. So if you never know them, you don't have to worry about it. And so in all these multiple places we lived, and all, we never knew our neighbors ever, ever, ever. And if we even spoke to them, my dad would frown upon it. So that was another weird twist of my dad's life, which I think could have added to my um, shyness, you know, and, and being kind of inside, because it was really clear to me from a young age that you weren't supposed to talk to the neighbors. And, you know, four kids, we were each other's best friends. My mom, as far as advice, when I went to college, my mom gave me one of the best pieces of advice, pieces of advice I've ever gotten. My dad sat me down and they did like the talk, if you will. Son, you're going to college. And again, dad was, you know, high functioning everything in spite of his, his, his stuff. So these kind of things, you know, was great. And, and we had good family life. And he said, um, he's like, you're going to college. He said, so I need you to remember some things, give you some advice. So don't get a girl pregnant. So clearly they had no clue. They had a gay son. Don't get a girl pregnant. You know, don't do drugs. You know, study hard. You know, don't be hanging out with the wrong people. And then he looked at my mom and he was like, anything you want to add, honey? And she just looked at me and she said, remember to moisturize. And that was it. And I'm 64 years old and I don't, I look okay. I look pretty decent for my age, 
And moms, I looked, I looked better a couple of years ago, you know, starting to catch up with me. But mom's advice was the best advice you know, that came out of that going away from home meeting. And I, I listened to it and I've been moisturizing since I was young and, and do it every single day, twice a day. Well, I, I was just, while I was, while I was listening to you and you're just describing your dad, um, you know, living in the moment and, you know, you, you, you alluded to the fact that maybe it wasn't, uh, he wasn't the 401k guy, uh, that he wasn't yeah. hanging Ramsey or uh, Susie Orman. Um, no. Speaking on that, and then you were talking about your mom, how you might, your mom made things normal. I, I, I believe, Gordon, we had the same parents. Uh, because mm. my, my dad was the dreamer, right? And he still is. My dad yeah, was a yeah, dreamer, yeah. But honestly, like he didn't, like, and he's wise beyond his years. Uh, but during the time, early on, there was a lot of addiction. There was those things. And then my mom would be loving on us, um, and she, he would love on us too, but she would love on us. And she made what we were going through very normal. And she made, yep. so my question to you, my mom used to make um, a thing called tater dogs. Still my favorite thing of all time. What she they made, sound good. I don't even know what they are, but they sound good. <laughs> when this quarantine thing is over, we're, I'm going to cook you tater dogs. They, she all right. Said, <laughs> okay, sliced hot dogs, uh, fried them. So they're half. Huh? A casserole dish made her uh, famous mashed potatoes, put cheese on top of that, put it in the oven until the cheese baked, and that was tater dogs. And you Ooh. cut casserole. What was the thing that your mom made? My mom also used crushed potato chips on top of like uh-huh. Uh-huh. noodles. And when we would ask her what it was called, she would just say, shut up. Um, so yeah. what were those things that your mom was making that was, you know? Well, first, top of the list was anything related to pasta. So my mom has, has got like the cooking abilities of a chef. Like she could work in any, I mean, she's unbelievable, actually. At this point, she's 84 years old. And over time, she's learned. Um, and my grandmother was a, a brilliant cook. And they, they ran a little restaurant. And when my mother and my father became engaged, my grandmother went to my mother and said, I have to teach you to cook for my son. And did. And over all the years that we lived in New Jersey, I remember my grandmother over all the time teaching my mother and, and my aunts how to, how to cook for, their, for her kids. Um, so you know, she learned to do all kinds of amazing things as a cook. And when we were really at our poorest, um, pasta in every kind of imaginable way, like she could just make great with just butter and a little bit of something. And it was just, it would end up being, a, and it was always those little tiny twists, like in a great restaurant. You're like, how the hell did they do that? Like, what is that flavor? Like mom would be that. She could do that. And, and pasta is cheap, you know? So it was butter, you know? So it was a little oil, you know? It wasn't always about, you know, or, or you know, she'd find some, a little bit of tomatoes. And, and the other thing was tuna fish. My mother could do anything with a freaking can of tuna fish. It was like, whether it was a casserole, whether it was some sort of, like she'd find stuff to make one tuna fish can like last for six people. Like she'd put all kinds of weird, we never knew what she was doing exactly, but she was just highly creative, you know, and, and could do a lot with tuna and a whole lot with pasta. Well, that's, that's incredible. So I want to, I want to continue on with this because I uh, like you get a chance to be around future professionals or beauty school students, right? Our industry is full of people like you in not so great of situations, but we had to look at it different. Yeah. I mean, that's what our industry is full with. Um, I say that there's three people in the industry. One, um, the, the, the super wealthy, that their parents are mad that they're going to go to school and they kind of have an F you attitude. <laughs> they color their yeah. hair black, 
put it over the top of their eyes and then go to Hot Topic and buy everything they can and just tell their parents that I'm going to make you mad. Number two is the mildly um, uh, affluent, which uh, their parents tell them, I'm okay with you going to hair school. Although um, I need you to go to college first. So you have something to fall, uh, you know, so you have something to fall back yep. on. And then yep, yep. unicorns, help me on this one. The unicorn is the kid who comes from absolute nothing. And his parents are just mm-hmm. doing anything or her doing anything at all. The unicorn, yep. what I find, the unicorn doesn't have any challenge with work ethic because they grew up in that. But yep. they do have a challenge becoming successful because a lot of times they can't accept their success. Number the, the, the person in the middle, the mildly affluent kid, they are challenged because you're generally trying to prove to the parent if you're the employer and they're trying to prove to their parent that this is a viable uh, uh, profession. So they always have to show them yep. money. And then, and they're also in a hurry and they're in a hurry too. <laughs> they're in a hurry. And this first kid that I said that has the, I hate you dad bangs. Um, that kid um, generally burns out in six months a year because they're doing it mm. for a negative reason. So when I heard you, you're talking about your upbringing, things like that, you completely disconnected your upbringing from who you are now and you're Mm -hmm. you give yourself the ability to dream what do you say to kids out there that are like yeah i see you gordon you're the ceo of hairbrain you're doing your thing you're doing these things but you know i grew up in this this is who i am you broke that cycle let's talk to that and how you broke the cycle because most people they do one of two things they either become the abuser or go the other way and you seem to cycle in your family how was that yeah well you we a lot of us become our parents right i mean so when you have dysfunction of the parents it's like flip a coin which parent am i going to become you know so so i i start you know with that as the challenge for people coming from you know these kind of backgrounds the um um i knew early on like i said i was quiet i was introspective i i I watched everything you know i listened to everything you know i was a kid in, in bed trying to fall asleep, but not really because I wanted to hear everything that was going on in the house that I wasn't privy to. Like, what are they talking about downstairs? You know, I was, I was that person. And so as I was growing up, you know, I began to, as I, in my teenage years, my later teenage years and getting ready to go to college, I really began to have some context for my father's behavior and realized, you know, that although his intentions were always good and he was basically behind all that, a good human being, just had these frailties I didn't want to ever be that and 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 I believe that he didn't want to be that you know that's how I felt at, at, at that time and so and my father was a dreamer a ridiculous dreamer you know that um, he my father was the lottery ticket buying dreamer <laughs> not the not the go hard work dreamer you know my father was the lottery cards or the trifecta <laughs> the trifecta the dog track he loved the dog he loved, he, he really, you know, definitely loved the dog track. So, you know, I, I, I took like the dreaming aspect of my father, which was really about having a better life and took away in my head the dysfunction. And I was like, you know, if, if I don't have that going on, I can dream, you know, and I, and I can, from what my mother has instilled in me, be anything I want to be. And so it's kind of a little bit of both of their influence. Um, and I think my ability to, just be kind of a geek, I guess, and understand that is what is very difficult for a lot of people to let go of, which is judging our parents, you know, because um, I think that's where we often get stuck. You know, we, 
we judge, we we hold grudges, we hate, we don't feel good about them or ourselves, you know, all kinds of stuff. I, my ability to separate myself, I think, allowed me to kind of push past it and, and know that a lot of what both of them had were going to serve me well. Um, um, I knew never to put a dollar in a slot machine. You know, I, I realized early on, when I went to college, I did drink. And in my second year of college, I decided never to drink again. Um, um, as I got older, not now I have a glass of wine, you know, but, you know, but I don't drink, drink. And um, so these were decisions that had to do with my father's behavior, you know. And so I think I think I was able to separate them and and that just served me well. And then but I didn't know anything about work or career until I started it. And for some reason, oh, let me back up, I guess. Uh, when I was in college, um, my second year of college, I ran out of money completely. My my father took my college fund. I'd been saving for college for years and years and years. And my father, because of his dysfunction with money, we didn't qualify for financial aid because he had a lot of money coming in, but he also, it was going out on the other side. So I had to put myself through school and my dad took the money without me knowing it. And so all of a sudden I was out of money and I had to go beg for money in order to, to stay in school. And that's a whole nother long story, but but the, the college was good to me, and I got a job. I worked in the financial aid office in the college. They gave me a work-study job to, to work off my debt and also make some money. And that was the first real job I had. I worked in a gas station in high school. I worked in Kentucky Fried Chicken <laughs> in high school um, and, um, and some other stuff, you know, paper route and all that stuff. But when I got a real job, I worked full-time. I went to school part-time when that happened. Um, I was a file clerk. And within a month, I was in, I was the go-to file clerk. We had 30,000 files in a room of financial aid stuff. And if Paul Jones came in, we had to go get his file. It was old school, right? And his file was often not where it was supposed to be. And you had to go find the file. It was like a needle in a haystack. And I was like the guy. Like I could find anything because I worked so passionately. I was like, I'm going to do this because these people are saving my life by allowing me to stay in college. And so I was gonna pay them back every chance I get. And I think that was the foundation of my work ethic. Like, because as I worked harder than anybody else and I consciously did it, I'm gonna be, I'm gonna be the guy who they will never think about letting go. I will be the guy who can ride this out and, and build something better for myself. Um, when I left that and went into the real world, it just kind of came with me. Like, I just, I can't really explain it. But like when I got my job at Levon's in Denver, within three months, it was supposed to be like a three, four month job. They were like, you have to stay. And, you know, I was there for a long time. So talking years after that about why they were like, cause we just never saw anybody who works as hard as you do, given that you're pushing paper around. It's not, you know, they weren't comparing to me, somebody doing beautiful hair. They're like, you're sitting in a desk moving paperwork around and you do it harder and better than anybody. <laughs> so, so that, you know, I think informed my whole career. Well, I mean, look at this and, and listen to you. I'm not, I'm, I'm writing down notes while we're talking because, I mean, when you said this, this was so huge. Don't judge study. So, I mean, mm. when you said that, like my mind, I, I don't know if you saw it, but my mind might <laughs> because we have sight, right? And what you were telling me is we have sight to, to study to judge. And a lot of times when we take the time to judge something, then we waste the time and you were studying. The other thing that you said that was so huge is that you see the advantage in everything. 
Like you see mm. your strengths and you use everything for a strength. So you glazed over it. And I love this about you because you're so humble. You said, I'm, you know, I'm kind of introvert, you know, I'm not out there and stuff like that. But then you said, I use that to be able to study because I was quiet. So I read and mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think it was, I think it's incredible. So let's move forward to, to modern day. Um, now, this is where everyone's like, holy cow, I can't believe I get a chance to be able to hear this about Gordon because what we hear about Gordon, what we see about Gordon is not to say that you have this, uh, that, uh, you know, you have this unreal um, image, but I mean, you're the, no, CEO, I don't. you're the CEO of Hairbrain, like kids in the industry, yeah. when they in the industry, if they're listening to one podcast, they're listening to you. Um, why did you choose Hairbrain? Because where were you at before? So where, where were you at right before um, uh, Hairbrain? And then why Hairbrain? Yeah. So I was the publisher of American Salon Magazine. Um, and so I did that for three and a half years before joining Hairbrain. Like I said, I've been doing different things for 40 years in the professional beauty industry. So, so um, I, again, I'll back up one step before it will make more sense. So going back 10 or so years is when I kind of fell in love with social media. And when I, when Nina introduced me to social and I dug into it, I was like, wait, I was like, this is going to change everything. And I was saying it, I was in classes before anybody was in classes. And I would say in my classes, I was like, uh, it's called social media. I'm like, you're the most social people I need. It was like a no brainer for me. I'm like, wait, this is really cool. This is the way to promote business. This is the way to bring people together. And the first part of the term is social. So how could hairdressers not be attracted to this was my theory. And it, it ended up being right. That led to me being a consultant in the industry. I worked with a lot of brands to help them in early days, figuring out digital strategy. And it was new to me, but I was figuring it out. And, and I had a pretty successful run as a consultant, worked with a lot of brands. That led me to a very big project for American Salon to help them figure out digital and social. And at the end of it, they asked me to join the team and to become the publisher, which is the top role at the magazine. And so I did that. And... Um, the world is changing so fast because of digital and social media. And uh, three years ago, I made the decision that the publishing world as we know it in beauty was gonna change radically. And I didn't feel any of the publishing companies were ready for what was coming. And that was kind of what we see today, which is you know, social media is everything in so many different ways and publishing, we don't have as many magazines or not as many pages, you know, if you go to the newsstand in an airport, there aren't as many, everything's changed. And so I went to my employers and I said, Huge change is coming. Um, media is going to fall off a cliff, in my opinion. And I know you don't want to hear that from me as your publisher, but it is. And you guys either need to invest in a big way in the business so we can make a turn uh, into the new future of, of, of information sharing, or I probably don't need to be here, you know, because then we don't have the same shared vision. And, and I've had a long career, and I'm never worried about, you know, having a place to do something. And so... Um, they asked me to stay, but we couldn't come to agreement on what the future looked like. You know, they're like, stay, stay, stay. it's all good. You just let go of your, let go of your feelings. It'll all be fine. <laughs> and I'm like, no, I, I'm like, I, I have to feel good about my work. You know, so, so I made a decision to leave, to go back into consulting. I lined up some very important clients and I told a few friends, including the co-founders of Hairbrained. I was one of the first members of Hairbrained, one of the first 200, 10 years earlier. And I, I was a passionate, um, cheerleader from the founders, Randy Taylor and Gerard Scarpacy. And, and so when they heard I was leaving to go into consulting, Gerard called me one day and said, you may think I'm crazy, but is there any chance you would consider coming over here? 
And um, I, again, I'm a huge, huge fan. I love the guys. I love everything they do at Stanford. And I, my only response is like, I don't know if you can make this work for me. You know, you're small and I've come from bigger. And we spent a few days figuring it out and we're like, you know what? We think we can do this. And, uh, and we have, and, and we've grown it tremendously. And, and we went from seven brand partners and 20 brand partners. We launched online learning with hblive.me. We have grown our e-commerce presence. We've launched podcasts. And so it's been, um, it's, I was just drawn to it because I'd been a part of it for so long and I felt it was the most authentic platform for hairdressers to get together and be themselves and be real in a very product neutral brand, you know, agnostic, um, and yet supported by brands platforms. Um, and it's their mission has always been to shine a light on hairdressers. Um, and most importantly, to shine a light on educators and people who share with hairdressers, but, but both. And some of my favorite hairdressers today are people I met 10 years ago from Hairbrains when they were just coming out of beauty school, you know, and there's Carlos Sugar Skulls from, from LA or Cantrell Mitchell or, or Wes Palmer, you know, Wes does hair. I met them all when they were in beauty school through Hairbrains and knew immediately they were going to be somebody. And um, so, um, yeah, I, I've had a special place in my heart for Hairbrain for a long time and I'm really proud to be here. Well, anyone who knows you, like knows you, Gordon, um, none of this stuff is a surprise. The success that you've had, none of this is a surprise. And the re I think the reason why is because like, we've, I've, I've been around you step by step and I've seen it, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, you were in the game before me. You said you've been in it for 40 years. Um, I've been in it for 28. Um, but <laughs> it wasn't a surprise. It's probably one of my favorite quotes when uh, I'm a big sports fan. I, I, I am. And there was... Uh, <laughs> Thought, uh, Nate Diaz and Nate Diaz didn't have a chance they thought I called it the day before I called my brother and I was like Nate Diaz is gonna get him he's gonna win the fight well Nate Diaz ended up choking him out and they went to interview him afterwards Joe Rogan interviewed him and he said I know uh, who Joe I know who Joe Rogan is I don't know who Nate Diaz is but I know who Joe Rogan is he says how does it feel to be the uh you know the uh the champ or it wasn't the champion at the time but how does it feel you know to win the fight and he puts a uh, microphone in his face and he said I, I'm not surprised, MFers. And I want to say that to you, like seeing you and seeing what you're doing, I'm not surprised because of mm -hmm. the person that you are. I had a person and my wife was going to do hair for the Golden Globes, right? My wife, Brooklyn. And Kayla was freaked out. She's 20 years old. She's like, oh my gosh, you're going to do hair for the Golden Globes. And my wife was like, yeah, and she's like, how did you get to do that? And my wife was like, well, I've been an educator for 17 years with Paul Mitchell. I have great relationships with the mm -hmm. people, uh, this, this PR agent, this person, this person, this person. I've been friends with them. They trusted me and they called me. And she's like, yeah, yeah, I didn't ask all that. How did you get to the Golden Globes? And my, my wife went to say it again. And she's like, 17 years, I've been friends, blah, blah, blah. And the girl was like, yeah, yeah, but how did you get to the Golden Globes? And my wife just put her head down and walked away. What do you say? Because a lot of people are looking at and being like, wow, CEO of Hairbrain, like, I want to do that. I'm in school right now. I want to do that. What do you say to those kids? Like, what do you say to right, right now? Uh, most kids want to put a post and be famous immediately. What do you say to mm -hmm. those? Because you look at it like a Gerard, you know, a Gerard, that guy's been hustling and working his butt off for yep. years, 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 years before he walked through yep. a place. 
Yeah. Well, you, you said the right thing there, but, I, but, but I'll, let me come back to that one second. I have to, I have to go back to Brooklyn and, and that question that she got, you know, how'd you get there? But how'd you get there? But how, my brain just went to, if, if I was Brooklyn in that moment, I probably would have had, had to end with an Uber. You know, so, maybe, maybe that would have satisfied the person asking the question at Uber, you know, so, um, before walking away. Um, you know, Gary Vaynerchuk is a favorite of mine, Gary V. Um, that was a great podcast. He's a great, you know, uh, you know, um, influential, you know, human being when it comes to, you know, marketing and, and what's happening in the world around us, and especially, you know, digital. And he always talks about the hustle, you know, the hustle. It's all about the hustle. And, you know, going back to what we talked about earlier, you know, for whatever reason, you know, I, I had the hustle in me and I never, um, to me, to me, work is always about the now. Like I don't spend time thinking about what's next. You know, I think I've always been given opportunity because of what I did in the now, you know, in, 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 in the, the never ending now, right. It's, it's, you know, now is now with you and, five more minutes is it's another now but in all those nows like my focus is in like now it's it's about today and tomorrow and yes as as, as someone who's had the you know um you know ran american salon running hair brain of course i'm focused on the bigger goals and you know planning and, and what we do but if i had to you know just really think about me you know i think 80 percent of of me you know it comes my success comes from the work that i do in the now and that people look at me or have looked at me over time and go, he's, he's a hard worker, he's a smart worker, you know, he, you know, I show up for everything, I show up, you know, I, I'm early, I stay late, you know, I always, when I was young, I was like, what else do you need before I go home, you know, I'm, I'm gonna, you know, I'm done with all my work, you know, is there anything else you need me to do? Can I do anything? Can I help, you know, um, what's going on? So I tie every bit of my success back to that as a starting place, you know? And then the other thing I would add to that is I more, I passionately learned something since I was a child and today, uh, all these years, every single day, you know, again, my daycare center was the library, you know, and I just didn't sit in the library. I roamed around the library and got books and looked at anything that interested me, you know, including as a seven-year-old textbooks on homosexuality, you know, so, you know, any seven-year-old is going to, find their way through the index cards to could then see almost anything, you know, you know, whether it's science or whether it was math or whether it was Dr. Doolittle, you know, all that stuff. Um, I'm really passionate about learning something every day. I get up in the morning and I watch a YouTube video, you know, um, I watched Brene Brown again this morning. And so I, I passionately try to learn something every single day. I love documentaries. I love reading. Um, I am, um, you know, the current book, um, brilliant, by the way. What is it? What? Um, Sapiens. It's called Sapiens. It's a brief history of humankind. It's called Sapiens. It's a really great, engaging writing of the history of humanity. You know, it's, it's, it's a great book. He has another book he wrote about the future. I read the future one first. Um, well, the present and the future. Um, but um, yeah, so I read and I listen to audio books and I listen to podcasts and I walk my dog every day. I listen to podcasts. Um, beauty podcasts, news podcasts, um, you know, thought leader podcasts, you know, I'm really, I'm just, I'm so inquisitive and, and I just learned early on that the more I know, the more I can get done, you know, in the now and that it will open up doorways for me. And I've never, 
thought I want to be this or that. I, I, I honestly never have had a job where I thought about what the next job would be. I, I don't recall ever having that thought ever, which is really kind of weird. <laughs> so, and I think maybe most people should be more thoughtful perhaps, you know, but to me, my focus was always so in the now and I'm, and I'm so workaholic-y, you know, um, in a good way. I just paid off, you know, people noticed. Well, Gordon, I think the big thing, I mean, there's so many things that stand out to me with you, like being able to spend time with you, again, your everlasting smile. For those of you who are listening to this, <laughs> I hope you smile through this and he lights up, the, lights up the place. The other thing that hit me so hard is I remember it was probably about six, seven months ago. I called you or I texted you. I think I said, you available and you right away. You sat on the phone with me. I swear on my life, it was maybe an hour and a half and you... <laughs> instructed like and it was a master class that you gave me on podcasting and you said mm. this you're going to have a, a if you're going to do it by yourself you're going to do it for 20 minutes 20 to 25 minutes is the cap you're going to do an interview it's going to be around 45 40 to 45 minutes um you were telling me this and you were constructing and you even told me where to go how to produce it uh the the stuff that you would need the things that you didn't need to do that people told you need to do most people are so um, they grab on to what they have mm. and they don't release it. What gives you the power? Right. To Why is that so important to you? And you got nothing. Like I didn't say, you didn't say to me, Oh, I've got this master class, Kelly, sign up for yeah. 99 and then, <laughs> and then no. you, I'll sell you on a call. You literally just gave to me and then you followed up with me and you said, are you okay? And if there's anything that you need, yeah. then, and, and I'm a guy that, I mean, we're friends, but mm -hmm. like, why, why do you do things like that? And you do that all over our industry. Oh, I think, well, help me with this. I think you only do that for me because I'm special, Gordon. I'm just joking with you. <laughs> why, why, did, why is that so important to you? Well, and, and it's interesting too, because um, probably half of the podcasters in the beauty industry had that same conversation with me. They were thinking about starting a podcast and what equipment and, and, and you know, just lots of examples of that. So I, th I think it comes from a couple of places. Um, again, my mom, I think, has something to do with it, you know, her be nice, you know, kind of attitude about everything. But, but the re where it really comes from is my, my greatest mentor in life was, um, was Leo Passage, the founder of Pivot Point. And um, so when I was 30, I, I was with LaVon's in, in Denver, Colorado at school for five years. And then I moved to Salt Lake City. One of her friends recruited me. Um, and he asked me to move to Salt Lake City at 27 and run a chain of 11 cosmetology schools. And he just said, you can do whatever you want with them. That your boss tells me you're the greatest thing ever, blah, 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 which wasn't true. But she liked to brag on me. And um, only because I had a college degree and I was the only person in a company of 150 or 60 people who had a college degree. So she thought I was a unicorn. I, I don't in any way believe that college degrees matter very much. But um, I was lucky she felt that way. So I went to work in a school with 11 schools. And he had bought, he was a concrete executive who bought 11 schools because it was their 25th wedding anniversary. And his wife was a hairdresser who always wanted to own a beauty school, but he could only find 11 because they were for sale as the chain. <laughs> so he looked for two years, getting ready for it, the anniversary. And so he bought 11 and he didn't know what to do with them. So he said, here, come, come do this at 27. And I somehow managed to, long story, quadruple his business. And I got a reputation in the national scene in the school business. And Pivot Point came knocking and asked me to move to Chicago. Um, to run what they called the school division, which was 300 and some cosmetology schools around the country that I would become connected with. So 
much longer story there. But I became very quickly kind of Leo Passage's kind of right-hand guy and, and um, in, in so many ways. And he was so generous to me and introduced me to so many things. But most importantly, he was the most generous person I'd ever met with his time, with opportunity, with introductions to people. He built Pivot Point on being good to people. And he believes so much in the power of learning and education. He was so passionate about, you know, being behind the scenes, watching how education got developed. He was so passionate about the process of teaching and learning that I saw him take entire books and go, this just isn't quite right, and, and rip it up and say we're starting over again. Because he just believes so passionately in the responsibility that you have when you educate people. But I just saw him give and give and give with nothing. He never asked for anything back. And I was with him for 10 years, and I just think I left with a piece of him, you know? And um, yeah, which is why mentors are so important. You know, I didn't know it at the time. Um, the other thing that happened is um, I was a vice president there. And I was, again, when I was with him 10 years, I left, I was VP of sales and marketing for the company. And um, in a company like that, um, it's hard, it's hard to, it's, it's kind of hard to explain how special he was, you know? Um, but he was like the, just the ultimate role model in giving and every chance he got, he would give me an opportunity, um, but always thoughtfully, you know, and always kind of in the back of his mind with what was best for his company what was best for him and, and most importantly to him was what was best for me or whoever it was that he was, you know, trying to get to the next place. He would help people who were really good at what they do, leave the company and go get a better job somewhere else, not because he wanted them to leave, but because he knew that that was where they were headed at some point. And he'd rather help facilitate and help them get to the right place. And that's unheard of, you know, unheard of. The other thing that happened to me was, again, I kind of became his right hand and I would like write speeches for him. I became really passionate about being behind him. Like I just, once I kind of got into the groove, I was like, I love this. I love the opportunity to give him what he needs so he can sound or be as good as he can possibly be knowing he's already great. But then he was like, I need some help crafting the words today, you know, or I need I need to kind of sort out what the focus should be in this thing I'm going to. So work on it for me. And I, I fell in love with that, you know, being the number two guy, you know, and I think that has also helped and informed my career. Well, going to this, this, you saying about being the number two guy for me in my career, I never wanted to be the number one. I always wanted to be mm -hmm. the number one would always ask me like what do you want to do do you want to have your own product line you want to do this and I was like nah I just want to hang out with the dude and be the dude's guy does that make sense yeah, <laughs> yeah. how has your transition been because I mean you're the guy like you're the guy in our industry now how did because playing number two honestly like I'm I'm super comfortable in number two because mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you just get after it um, you know you could press stuff I found a challenge at times when I went into my own company because when I became number one, um, and I'm not saying that I'm number one, but I'm just saying when I was out front, <laughs> it began to, number be, one. It began to <laughs> get lonely, Gordon. Have you got lonely in those times? Because, you know, as you, as you move forward, has that, has that happened with you? No, you know, well, I've never thought of myself, but there was only one moment in my career where I thought of myself for a, a very short amount of time as number one. 
and it didn't serve me well. And I think I adjusted myself because of that. So after Pivot Point, I became the president of My Lady Publishing. So My Lady Publishing is the textbook company that's in most of the beauty schools. And at that point, they were in like 90% of beauty schools because Pivot Point didn't have a textbook yet of that kind. So, um, but I became the president. So I was the number one guy. I'd never been a number one guy. I didn't know how to be a number one guy. You know, I was really good at being a number two guy. And in that moment, that short amount of time where I was like, oh, I'm the number one guy, I got to be there, right? I didn't, not only did I not quite know how for me, I didn't, it wasn't who I was, you know? I understood what my job was. I understood what I needed to do. So very quickly, I just found my way to make other people more important, you know? And that role is like my editor-in-chief. Like, how can I make my editor-in-chief the public face? You know, and I'm more the business guy. Um, when I was the publisher of American Swan, my editor-in-chief there, I was like, how can I make her first and foremost? And, you know, and I show up and do my thing where I do my thing and, and, and definitely have a, a, a public facing, but I don't want to be number one. At Hairbrain, to me, my, role, my job is CEO, um, but the co-founders, George Scarpacy and Randy Taylor, in my mind, are number one and number one. Number one A and number one B. And my job is to support them. You know, and, and, and what I do, you know, um, excites them because it helps to move the business forward, you know, um, in support of the vision they had 10 years ago, you know, so, so I just don't look at myself as number one. and I don't think I ever will. Well, you're, uh, you're amazing. A person that uh, you need to get in touch with. He's a friend of mine. Uh, so I want to connect. His name is Art Barber. One of our fathers of servant leadership and you just, explain to a T what servant leadership is, turning the, the leadership oh. structure like the C-suite on its head, as opposed to the CEO yeah. being on the top, that the CEO said was, I just serve everybody else and I push them forward. His name's Art Barter. And I want to get you, he's a good mm. friend here. And, but cool. he, and he's a, a really best friends with another guy, Ken Blanchard. Um, yeah. motivational oh, wow. He has about 67 books. He, I, I interviewed him. Oh, and yeah. I was blown away. I was like, yeah, so... Uh, you know, you've, you're an author, and he's like, yeah, I've written 67 New York Times bestsellers. I was like, wow. Like, uh, well, Ken, that's Ken Blanchard, joke. I'm he, a bestseller, too, in my Yeah. <laughs> well, and Ken Blanchard started with The One Minute Manager. That was, I think, his first big bestseller. Yeah, so, so. Being around him, he's incredible. So I want to get you guys connected, because if we, we get you wow. connected, then you'll have uh, Ken, too, and it's just, they're just phenomenal. So Very cool. Let's, let's bring them home here, too, Gordon. I, I want to stay with you for a but I want to, before I even ask the question, I want to get your promise that when social distancing stops, I want you in the studio. Like, I want to be sitting with you because I want us to be able to. Um, okay. To deal. And I, I, rarely, I rarely say yes to video. So you know how special you are to me because I, I'm not a fan of video for myself. I just, uh, my weird, you know, I love podcast audio. I, can, I feel like I'm more myself then. But um, for you, I would, I would love to do that, Kelly. Well, the moisturizer from your mom has worked out well. Always moisturize. <laughs> Brought to you by Avino. This uh, this podcast is mom. <laughs> uh, so moisturize always. Um, Ten years ago, you started talking about things that other people weren't talking about at the time. You started seeing social media for what it really truly was going to be. You were going all in on your disruption. Robert Iger did this. Right, so I just read the you, you read read his book, A Wild Ride. I haven't I haven't read it, but I know about it. Yeah, read it. It's phenomenal. What he said was mm. in 2015, he saw Netflix about to do what they were doing, so he pulled all their mm. content 
and he pulled all their content and he invested in the disruption. You did this. You have vision. You have crazy vision. Like, I mean, it's, it, it blows my mind. I want to do a whole podcast on how you're able to predict the future. I believe it, though, in hearing you. Um, it reminds me of Warren Buffett because reading about Warren Buffett, I was like, he must be the busiest man ever. And he said in his book, uh, he actually doesn't have an assistant. He stays mm -hmm. in the house and he reads all day. And then when an opportunity comes, he's so prepared and everyone thinks he makes snap decisions and he's so wise. And mm -hmm. he's like, because I stay so chill and I read. And that's what I heard from you this whole time. Take us to Star Wars. From Gordon's thought process, what's the galaxy far, far away that when you say it today, people will be like, yeah, whatever, Gordon. And in 10 years, we're all going to, I mean, because without social media, like literally there's some people that wouldn't be living right now. Right, right, right. Yeah. Star Wars that you're seeing. Oh, right it's going to be, it's, it's going to be so different, you know, um, and I, I am a student of this. Um, and anything that I think about the future is based on what really smart people think, not me. You know, the one thing I've learned a long time ago is about our industry is that we are we we may set trends in hair, but we're actually not really a trend setting or, you know, um, groundbreaking industry when it comes to some of the bigger innovation that we take advantage of every day. Social media didn't start in the beauty industry. Um, um, we, we change our floors to take advantage of really cool floor stuff as a weird example. When the flooring industry comes up with something, it, it doesn't start with us. It starts elsewhere. Um, and I would say that's kind of true of all the stuff we see happening around us. So e-commerce, you know, we talk about e-commerce and there's good and there's bad. In it. It, it didn't start with us. It started elsewhere. And using that as an example, as we come out of Corona, I mean, reading everything that's being written about what's happening with e-commerce and retail and the way people buy things, it's going to be different on the other side. Um, and without Corona, it would still be different in two, three, four, five years. I mean, the idea that um, as life gets more and more complicated, we become more and more obsessed with, with finding value in, in our time. And, and experience is the ultimate use of time, right? To find some experience that excites you, that engages you, that makes you feel better about life and, you know, who you are or who you're with. And so as life gets more complicated, we're going to be more and more aware of that. And it's like, you know, what, what's the experience of my going to Target to buy, you know, two cases of paper towels and a case of toilet paper? Like, what's the experience? What's the value in me doing that? There's none. There's none. I can go to Amazon and order my, my, as a prime user and they'll ship it to me for free and I'll have it tomorrow if it wasn't in the middle of Corona. So we're going to see a massive shift in how people experience the world as digital gets more and more um, connected to solving problems that we have every day, which is what e-commerce is doing right now for a whole lot of people who are locked in their homes. Right. I mean, Amazon, the world's falling apart and Amazon hired a hundred thousand people. If that's not a sign of what's to come, my mother, who's 84 years old, is buying stuff, ordering stuff from Amazon and never did. You know, um, my mother, when I introduced her to social media, um, which was not easy to do and to drag her into it, you know, and I use I used the bait of her of her great grand her, her great grandchild um, to to get her on there. Like, mom, look what you get. To, look what you get to do on FaceTime if you would just get there. Um, now, my mom and her little old church ladies that they, they hang out and they have lunch every week. Um, they play what they call Yelp roulette and they, they go on Yelp and find restaurants and put their phones in the middle of the table and they grab one. And that's, that's how they decide where to go eat. They're in their eighties. So for those who think all this stuff is just for the new, 
you know, you're, you're, you're missing a, a bigger shift that's happening. And that's everybody's embracing it. Post-corona, it's going to be embraced at a much higher level. 5G is coming. 5G is going to, the speed of everything is going to be like massively changed within five years. And as the speed changes, the development of new apps and new products and new tools, um, we're at the forefront of the digital revolution. We feel like everything's changed. Like almost nothing has really changed relative to what's going to change. Virtual reality. I'll, I'll end with this. In all the discussions I hear in the industry about this, I always hear one conclusion in bigger presentations at all kinds of events. The great news is nobody can replace us, the hairdresser. Nobody can replace us. I'm here to tell you, it's not right. It's, it's a wrong assumption. The hairdresser, some will be replaced. Um, and they were, if, if, if surgeons can do brain surgery with a robot, if a, if a robot can actually, with the help of a human, do brain surgery, they're going to be able to cut hair someday. Will they have an artistic ability? Probably not. But there's a really big chunk of consumers who come into our industry every day who are not looking for anything but commodities. They just want it to be fixed. They don't really care. They don't judge this. It's about commodity. It's about being out of my face. It's about being not too long. It's about maybe being cleaned up in a way that my friends are going, okay, you're cleaned up. You don't look scraggly. There's that part that just the extreme version of disruption is going to absolutely, I would suggest from everything I read and see, is coming our direction. Wow. Wow. Yeah. It's a ways off. It's a ways off. It's a ways off. But I, I would predict it's coming. Absolutely. And by the way, by, by the way, think about this. Think about, the, think about the great hairdresser. Think about somebody like yourself, you know, being behind the chair. I know you're doing a lot more things but who maybe is working with two or three assistants. I know so many great hairdressers who spend 15, 20 minutes with their clients. Everything else is done by everybody else. They do the consultation. They lay in the base cut. They give the direction. And then the little army of assistants comes in and gets everything done. Well, what if there were technological innovations that allowed some of that experience that's outside of the star, the person who's coming to be seen, to be booked, who validates the high price, what if some of that was done by technology? I'm telling you it's coming. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Well, um, uh, you have yeah. to come. Man. We, we got to run it back. We got to do this again. We got to have a part two, part yeah. three. The next time, I mean, we're going to sit in an hour of just what if, um, because okay. you're an absolute genius. Um, you're an even, like, you're, you mean so much to our industry, but honestly, like, you mean so much to me as a person. And that's the thing that I, I hope everybody uh, that you guys connect with is that you see this, you know, this guy who's Gordon Miller, iconic, but you see him as this little kid that, you know, struggled as a kid and, and maybe had some, had some challenges, but kept looking on the bright side. I just want to go over a couple of things here. I mean, that you, you use your strength. You see everything as an advantage. You, you understand the context of where things are coming from. You don't judge. You study Financial responsibility, we talked about working hard. Work is about now. Opportunity is in the now. The more you work, the more that you have the opportunity. Um, you are just, and you just told us, seriously, that, that we're going to have robots cutting hair. I love you. I, <laughs> okay, you. but before, I, before we end, I, I have to, let, let me say something before we end, because I, I should have said it up front, and, and it's just kind of flooding into my brain, because you're being... You know, obviously, you're being so nice to me, and I, I, I appreciate that, you know, a lot. Let me, let me be, be nice to you. Um, and I've said this, you know, 
as an introduction to you on stage. I've had the honor of introducing you on the IBS stage more than a couple times, I guess now, and um, years ago. And, you know, we, we met at a Katrina fundraiser, and we won't go into that story, but I was taken by you the moment I heard you get up on the stage, and I was like, okay, this guy's got a seriously profound gift of gab, and I mean that in the most positive way that you were, you know, you just could get up there and go, you know, and, and the audience was watching and listening and engaged. And then as I saw you develop as an educator, as an artist, as, as someone who's on platforms on your own as Kelly Cardenas and your team, what always grabbed me was that, A, going back to what you said about, you know, servant leadership, it was always for you about your team and giving, so you'd come out there with an army and the army would be of different folks in your organization with different levels of experience, including people who were just barely starting with you. And you would tell their stories. And most importantly for me, and I've shared this with a lot of people about you, is that if I have a pet peeve about the professional beauty industry, and it's never been more clear to me than it is today because of the corona, is that our industry collectively struggles with understanding money and math. And that so many people's careers are not as long as they should be, could be, because they don't understand money and math. They don't save. You know, I've talked to so many people, young people, especially right now, who are so fearful of the future because they, they have no backup. They have no cushion. They have nothing in the bank. And I've always, my whole career, been like, why can't we get our industry to understand how powerful and important it is to, to, to focus on making as much as you can within reason of what you're trying to accomplish and save some of your money, you know, and have a, have a plan, have a path. And you always, every time you've got up on stage that I've ever seen you, you always talk about the financial opportunity. You give the stats, you talk about individual people, you tell their financial stories in a way that's inspiring to the audience. And I, I, I every time I watch you, I'm like, everybody who's on every single stage in this industry needs to make that the conclusion of whatever they're talking about, because, why do a different haircut? Why do a better haircut? To give yourself a better life. And the only way you get a better life in today's world, but not the only way, but an important way is to, is to have more income, to have the security of a savings account. And you always, always, always talk about it. And I think it's um, unique and special and important and, and most importantly, really powerful. So thank you for that, Kelly. Thank you for that. Thank you for being on the podcast, my man. Uh, we appreciate you. Thank you for listening to the podcast, guys. Um, and Gordon Miller, uh, uh, the man, the myth. Thank you, thank oh. you. Cheers.